Welcome, everyone. This is Danny Haifong, and you are tuned into episode four of the Internationalist Transmission. I know that YouTube has a bit of a lag, so I'll let that come, uh, let that catch up. But this again, it's Danny Haifong. You are listening to episode four of the Internationalist Transmission here, Eastern Time, 4 p.m., um, November 29th. We have a very special guest today. Uh, it's Nick Estes of the Red Nation, and we are going to talk about a whole lot of things. We just saw us supposedly celebrated, a lot of us mourned, the passing of another so-called Thanksgiving, and uh, you know, Nick has been traveling around Latin America, following closely the developments there, and so we we're going to talk about all of this. We're going to talk about indigenous liberation, we're going to talk about internationalism, we're going to talk about the work that he's been doing. And so um, we are going to bring him on now. It's Nick Estes of the Red Nation podcast. Hey, Nick, how are you? Good. How's it going, Danny? It's going good. It's so good to connect with you. Um, very happy to have you. I've been wanting to talk about this subject for a really long time. Um, so thanks for spending the hour with me. So, yeah, let's just get right into it. You, uh, you know, you work on the Red Nation podcast. You do a whole lot of other work, writing, etc. Um, I guess if you could just talk about your definition of what indigenous liberation is. And, you know, this is the internationalist transmission. I know you talk a lot about the relationship between uh, the struggle for indigenous liberation and internationalism. So it would be great to hear that about that. From your perspective and yeah talk about some, uh, you know what uh, prompted you to form the red nation uh, with your comrades and anything else you'd like to go into just to begin this conversation that's a very broad uh, question <laughs> but i'll try to be as brief as possible and, and very concise but so the red nation formed in 2014 uh, really in response to a burgeoning uh, anti-police brutality movement anti-police violence movement in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, and also responding to specifically the vigilante attacks on indigenous people, uh, the two uh, Navajo uh, elders, um, Cowboy and Rabbit, uh, Key Thompson and Allison Gorman, were brutally murdered um, on the west side of town uh, by some young uh, men. And we really uh, saw kind of a, a a kind of gap or a, a lack of response, um, not just from the indigenous community, but in general, nobody really knew how to talk about it uh, and how to address it. And really what, what we were doing wasn't um, unique in many ways because we were just kind of carrying on the tradition of the Red Power Movement, which actually responded to uh, vigilante violence and police violence against native people, primarily off reservation or out of, you know, the kind of territorially designated areas that indigenous people are supposed to be. Um, and we, we did a lot of kind of surveys and, you know, fact finding missions about the current state of indigenous people, uh, specifically looking at how four out of five native people don't live on, uh, you know, federally defined um, uh, Indian reservations. And many of them find themselves in cities like Albuquerque, but also we adopted the kind of terminology that uh, indigenous people use to describe off-reservation spaces, which are which is the name uh, border town, and we might think of border towns on you know on the U.S. Canada border or the U.S. Mexico border, um, but in if we think about the kind of the, the nature of U.S. imperialism, which is a territorial uh, expansionist project, right through whether it's through manifest destiny 
or even um, through the Monroe Doctrine in the, in the Western Hemisphere, uh, the annexation of territory is fundamentally an imperialist project. And so we were kind of offering this uh, analysis, but also this uh, kind of organizing um, space and urban and urban centers uh, as as a, as a way to kind of springboard uh, larger issues that were uh, facing indigenous communities. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, the the way that the U.S. media uh, works and also U.S. culture works is that there's a constant erasure of indigenous people. And so many of our issues get framed within a culturalist context about Columbus Day, Thanksgiving. Um, and we tend to ignore uh, the the kind of social uh, and economic issues that face indigenous people that are indelibly linked to you know settler colonialism. And so when we talk about uh, indigenous liberation, that's really what we're talking about in terms of the United States as an imperialist uh, state. You know, it was the first nation, first state in history to be uh, entirely founded as a capitalist state uh, and fundamentally an expansionist state. And indigenous people, along uh, with uh, African people who were you know, sold into bondage, um, become sort of the progenitors of one of the longest resistance movements, uh, both anti-capitalist, uh, but also, also anti-imperialist and anti-colonial. So really, we're just tapping into that tradition um, and looking and thinking about kind of the material consequences of colonialism as we live them today and not really thinking about it as solely, you know, an indigenous issue, because fundamentally what many indigenous movements are advocating, things like clean drinking water, access to housing and healthcare, are universal issues. And so they tend to uh, get marginalized as like, okay, now we're going to have like the indigenous moment, you know, or the indigenous movement speak. Uh, and it, it is important to hold those spaces and to have indigenous voices, but at the same time, our demands in, in many ways are the, the demands not only of you know, working people and poor people in the United States, but throughout the world as well. And so we, we draw on you know, um, a socialist, a revolutionary socialist tradition, uh, as well as thinking about decolonization and, and talking about you can't have you know, uh, economic justice or economic democracy in a place like the United States without really addressing the fundamental contradiction um, you know, which is settler colonialism, and that is indelibly linked to the kind of advent of, of you know, of capitalism as a, as a world system. Yeah, no, very, very well put, very well put. I, uh, you know, it's, uh, what you said is very important, and, and I want to talk about, you know, it, it seems like there is this, I don't know how should I say, a reaction to all of the things that have happened. Indigenous people have been at the forefront of this. I know you've done a lot of work covering like the Dapple struggles, Keystone Pipeline struggles, uh, Standing Rock. I know you were really on the front lines of that. Um, and that all came within this context of what you, you were kind of saying, like this broader context that Indigenous uh, liberation falls into of, you know, we had Occupy, we had Black Lives Matter, we had... You know, we have so many of these rebellions against racist policing, and we also had this moment of uh, over the past uh, four or five years of a heightened class consciousness, so to speak. I, I, you know, I, I would say there are limitations to it, but it is heightened in the sense that there are so many more young people, especially young working class people across the board who want certain things. You know, they want the clean water, as you said, they want the health care, the housing. 
all of these things uh, they want very badly because the conditions are so dire. But th there seems to be an attempt in the discourse, in the political discourse, and as you mentioned, U.S. culture, to sow these divides. Uh, and one thing that I found interesting now that we are talking just a few days after Thanksgiving is how uh, there is kind of this separation made, I, I would say, across the broader left. And I think that's because of U.S. culture and this uh, you were saying on Twitter, like this kind of pilgrim mentality, <laughs> this like pilgrim left mentality of like indigenous people's struggles are like kind of their own thing. And if you talk about settler colonialism, you're just moralizing and the vast majority of Americans are like patriotic and they are nostalgic for better times. And so we have to start where they are, you know, and I think that's where a lot of this talk about patriotism and stop uh, being so woke that you're like insulting people who are trying to come together on Thanksgiving, all of this very strange discourse that goes on on the left, which doesn't really have. And I, I heard you mention this on Twitter. It doesn't have a material. It doesn't really have a material impact on people. Right. Like, like if you criticize Thanksgiving or you don't, uh, it doesn't really change people's material conditions. And so I want to get your take on, on sort of this discourse. And I, I find it so unhelpful. Uh, and, and I think it kind of negates a lot of the things that your, you know, the work that you do uh, really helps illuminate, which is, first of all, indigenous people exist and their struggles are interlocked with the broader struggles of humanity. And also, you know, there is this system that we have to talk about. You know, we have to talk, we have to really locate what, what is the system that we're fighting? And, and we can't really do that without um, understanding the, the current conditions and the history of, of indigenous people you know, on this land. So uh, anyway, I'd, I'd love for you to comment on whatever I just said. Yeah, I think, you know, I'll, I'll just start with the term woke because it's it's an overused, misunderstood and, and abused concept has become sort of like a, a cultural, a culture wars, you know, straw man to mean all kinds of things. But like, really, we should trace it back to its origins. It came from, you know, the streets and specifically from black organizers who we're using it to, to talk about, um, you know, the consciousness around, you know, uh, systemic racism, but also, you know, so you can't talk about systemic racism without talking about the, the sort of economic exploitation of black communities as well. And so when people kind of use that as a, as a, as a figure, there's like some, some people say it's dog whistling or whatever. I don't even, I, I had to, I have to look these things up because there's so many weird idioms in American, like yeah. <laughs> in American, yeah, like yeah. vernacular that it's, it's a little bit bizarre, but like the way I understand it is like dog whistling is like, you know, you, you say something that isn't overtly, you know, racist, but when you really think about what is being said, it's like, yeah, it's targeting a specific group of people. And in the case of like the anti-wokeness, there's like just a, a, you know, there's just a denigration of, of, black social movements and the black freedom struggle, where that word comes from, you know, and, and, you know, yeah, there are, and, you know, there was these surveys that came out about like saying that, you know, um, there is a reaction against, you know, wokeness, uh, especially the, the so-called wokeness of the liberal elite. Um, and I don't actually think that like Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or anyone else is really using the term woke to define their politics. Right. And so let's be clear, like, this is, you know, this isn't a, a term or a, a terrain that we should cede to like mm. the ruling class. And thank you, you know, and I, I just I feel like it's it's just disingenuous to uh, to like to say that everyone has a, a, a firm understanding of this, but also it's very disingenuous to remove it from 
its historical roots, which is specifically yes. within the kind of militant uh, Black Lives Matter movement that took to the streets um, in the last decade and had, uh, you know, had, gave rise to one of the, the largest protest movements in U.S. history in recent memory, you know, drawing 26 million people onto the streets. And so if we look at something like the Kyle Rittenhouse um, uh, trial um, and the, the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, um, Wisconsin, you know, the, the outcome of that was like a very interesting, you know, uh, I guess like barometer of where we're at in mm. thinking about these issues. Because first of all, you know, there was, there was some on the left or people who claimed to be on the left who were defending the, the verdict uh, and the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, and then also just saying that like the, the hyper woke crowd is taking this to, to extremes and not really understanding that like, you know, oh, well, you know, this isn't what everyone believes and this you're alienating this this mythic kind of white working class. And it, it's like, OK, that's a very strange accusation to make, especially since the three people that were shot and the two people that were murdered were <laughs> white working class people. Right. Um, and then there's, you know, of course, there's this whole thing about going into their backgrounds and whether or not they were, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, perfect victims of a crime. And, right, and even that, right, right. even that, that framing is also like, you know, we have to have perfect victims of police shooting. Like it, it just, it's. An and where does that record. come from too? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because that, it, it, you know, Rosenbaum and these other, you know, these other folks, uh, the other folks who got shot, even though they were white, the very narrative where that comes from this like investigation of what were the backgrounds? Do they deserve to get shot or do they get sure to get killed or not? Was the self-defense, all that nonsense, you know, we want everyone wanted to like nitpick at the case, but at the end of the day, even that very imp like this impetus to like oh were they worthy victims that's that's white supremacy i i mean yeah. regardless <laughs> of whether the victims are white or not like that's that's where i mean michael brown on and on and on how many cases have we had where that's literally the first reaction of, of most people but anyway continue yeah no and it, it just really goes to show that when they're saying things like this mm -hmm. it's they're saying that wokeness is dividing the working class uh you know and, and in fact it was like the fact that, you know, of those 26 million people who took to the streets um, during the George Floyd protests and the uprising, the vast majority of them were white kids, you know, yep. white working class kids who who were allying with, you know, uh, black activists, black organizers here in you know Minneapolis or elsewhere. And we should be we should be thinking about like how that consciousness unified, you know, people in this moment in time. It's another question, another conversation to see how that was co-opted by liberal elites into and trying to funnel, you know, street movements into electoral politics. But like, let's not move away from the question, the larger question of, of class solidarity, especially when it comes to police killings. And now to move mm. on to the, the, you know, the, 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 the pilgrim accusation. The reason I say that is because the so-called pilgrims didn't even call themselves pilgrims. It's a complete mythology. And so I say that because it's the investment in, the the you know the myth making of the united states is so deeply entrenched mm. uh that it you know it, it gives rise to all kinds of absurd notions as if you know just talking about genocide on people's day off um is somehow an offense or like somehow you know dividing the working class or dividing poor people right. and making their days you know much much worse when it's just saying that like yeah like you know that's it's a worker's holiday like take the time off have time with your family but it's also saying that like the origins of this particular holiday 
um, are completely fabricated and it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's what uh, many of my, you know, my friends who, who do the national day of mourning, which happens at Plymouth, uh, Massachusetts, every single Thanksgiving day, um, you know, say it's like, it's the pilgrim mythology that they're working against. And if you listen to the speeches, if you listen to what they're saying, um, and the origins of that particular uh, movement, the National Day of Mourning, you'll understand mm. that they're actually talking about everyone. You know, like racism, first and foremost, controls the behavior of white people. Like that's what it was intended to do. You know, the wages of whiteness going back to Du Bois. Mm. Like these, like we have, to, we have to have a serious conversation about it. And it's not about, you know, it's not about alienation. It's not about saying that like, you know, certain people like, you know, there's somehow a denigration of white working people. The creation of that that group of people in itself is racist. To say that like there's some kind of you know unity among among white people and agreement among white people when we can show you know just in the just last year that that's simply not the case and that people can hold contradictory views in their mind at the same time and understand that the United States is fundamentally built on genocide. Uh, and mm -hmm. slavery. And I would say that slavery is a form of genocide when you alienate, you know, children from their their families. That's actually the legal, the international definition of of slavery or excuse me, of of genocide. So there, there's a there's a long conversation that needs to happen here. This I, this whole idea about uh, patriotism and recuperating patriotism, you know, it's not it's nothing new. I think people go back to uh, an argument that ha or a debate that happened within the Communist Party can't remember yeah. the guy's name. Um, who, uh, who Earl Browder. Yeah, Earl really Browder. The champion, yeah. <laughs> but there's also, you know, um, some of my favorite, you know, authors like Grace and Grace Lee and, and James Boggs talk about this in Revolution and Evolution, uh, which is yeah. a really great book, where they're trying to recuperate a kind of sense, a revolutionary like nationalism, I guess, uh, within the United States. But there's several problems with that thesis as much mm. as i love you know them and the way that they, they talk <laughs> i about... actually am familiar with the argument too so keep going because I, I yeah I, it's been a while since i've engaged with it but but it's yeah, interesting because it comes from a radical left perspective but keep going yeah no absolutely and it's it's a good book like you should read it and you should read it uh critically because you know they they kind of gloss over this uh this broader notion of of indigenous nationalism to say that you know, like the real nation, you know, takes place, uh, uh, takes precedent over the fake nations, the nations that had to be replaced. Um, and it also it, like, it, you know, there's also this argument that it there's an equivoc, uh, what would you call an equivalence among among nationalisms, that all nationalisms are inherently reactionary. Not all nationalisms are inherently revolutionary, as we, as we know. And that doesn't mean that indigenous nationalism itself can't be a reactionary in its own character. We 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 do see that there is discrimination, you know, within indigenous communities. We're not removed from history, but it's to say that there's an organic kind of anti-imperialism built into not just indigenous uh, communities but also black communities. And I would mm -hmm. add to that, like the uh, you know Mexican American communities, those who were annexed by the United States, because those three groups of people were the only groups of people to become citizens as groups of people. Uh, when, you know, when European, uh, when Western and Eastern European immigrants uh, came to this country, they integrated and got citizenship as individuals, whereas citizenship was unilaterally imposed upon uh, Mexicans who, who found themselves, you know, 
uh, now part of the United States, or uh, freed uh, uh, black slave, uh, formerly black slaves or enslaved people, uh, as well as indigenous people in 1924. And, uh, you know, Vine Deloria Jr., who, who really kind of, uh, I would say, is one of the main theoreticians of indigenous liberation in the 20th century, argued this. He, he talked about tribalism. And now we, we, we see that word is being used uh, in a derogatory sense that like we, we need to move away from tribalism and this and that. But it's but it's it goes back to that idea that there's a collective peoplehood, a collective consciousness among groups of people who who were, you know, whose territories and lives were annexed wholesale as groups of people, as nations into uh, into the United States and for. Uh, indigenous people specifically, our nationalism or our tribalism is under constant, you know, threat and erasure all the time. And so yeah. when we talk about patriotism, um, yeah, we can look at, you know, indigenous communities and see that there is, you know, uh, you know, native youth enlist in, in the military at, at much higher rates than any other demographic in the country. Yet at the same time, there was a survey done by Illuminatives that found that 95% of indigenous people surveyed don't trust the federal government. So you have like a contradiction here, right? Um, and also we can look back at that, that military service uh, of indigenous people, you know, in, in um, historically, because the boarding school system, as it was introduced by somebody like uh, Richard Henry Pratt, who himself was a military man, you know, he was a civil war veteran, um, but then he also uh, commanded or, or led mixed units on the Western frontier to subdue, you know, uh, Comanche and Kiowa uh, indigenous uh, nations. Um, but he was he was he was commanding, you know, freed black units as well as Indian scouts a, a, alongside poor, you know, uh, you know, poor white people. And he said, why is it that after, you know, we get done conquering these indigenous nations, that black people get to go back and be, you know, citizens, you know, quote unquote, we know that there's with reservations, um, not our reservations, but other reservations. <laughs> <laughs> and then white people get to be Americans, but indigenous people just go back to the reservation. And so he looked at that and really questioned it. And he looked specifically at the, the black experience and said, well, what the United States did to black people through slavery actually had positive benefits. And this is me repeating his argument. I'm not agreeing with it. But he said that because black people were stolen from their homelands, um, they had, you know, they're taken from their parents. They were taken from, you know, their their mother lung or excuse me, their mother language, their mother, their mother land, as well as, you know, their culture um, to a large degree. Um, obviously, that that wasn't entirely, you know, the case. Um, they were be they were able to be molded into, you know, perfect American citizens. You know, and we know that that obviously wasn't the case, but. He's like, we should reproduce this for indigenous people. Let's remove them from the reservation environment. Let's attack the tribe. Let's go after the children the same way that we went after black children, remove them from their families, teach them a different language. They can't even communicate with their parents um, and then instill them with military discipline. And that's what you that that's what the first off or the the primary uh, federally run off reservation boarding school became the Carlisle Indian School, which is you know just happened to be at the the United States one of the United States oldest military barracks, um, and of course you know these schools were not education uh, facilities. Um, half of the, the incoming class died, uh, you know, at at Carlisle Indian School, and also is used uh, to take children 
to hold them as hostage, and this is the language of the, in, the policymakers at the time, to quote unquote, force the good, or to ensure the good behavior of their parents and the leaders of the tribe, which essentially meant to hold them as hostage for ransom for them to cede land to the United States. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm giving you a very kind of condensed history here, but then, you know, the closing of Carlisle Indian School happened in 1918, around the same time that the United States entered World War I. And since these were essentially military schools, these children, these native children had, you know, um, they had a, what would they call it, basic training in military service. And so they matriculated them into the army to fight for the United States. Um, and the, the justification, or at least the way that indigenous people reconciled it was, well, if we're going to fight for this country, we want our treaties and our land claims to be heard in, in Congress. And so they, they saw it as not them enlisting to fight for the United States, but to fight for their land, to get their land claims mm. heard. And of course, the Congress didn't listen to their land claims. You know, those, those kind of agreements and those understandings were later, um, you know, they, 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 they were later kind of uh, broken or you know, just completely discarded in general. And then citizenship was imposed, and then they crafted this narrative that it, you know, indigenous service in, in the U.S. military and U.S. patriotism was part of this broader tradition. Because why would people who are not citizens of a country fight for that country in Europe's bloody civil war? Our history is not unique. You know, uh, other European powers, colonial powers, also you know have their colonial armies, their colonial yeah. subjects fight for them as well, and so. It's a very warped distortion to think that, you know, indigenous people just kind of have this inherent patriotism and, you know, you have high enlistment rates, but then 95% distrust of the federal government. Yeah, no, I mean, those are those are all very good points. And I, and I feel like oftentimes when we're talking about this question of, of patriotism and, and sentiment and ideology, it ends up being kind of relegated to the question of feelings and how people feel and how they want to identify and how they want to sort of portray themselves. And it becomes completely disconnected from the actual work, what we call the class struggle. You know, you can't walk as equals in the class struggle if you're not equals. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's and the material reality of indigenous people in the United States in particular is one where, um, they are not equals to the the so-called you know the white proletariat, so to speak, in the United States. And, and, and in many respects, indigenous people uh, live under worse conditions all across the board, uh, oppression, exploitation, etc., um, than anyone else. And that's not to 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 make this about a hierarchy of oppressions or whatever, and to see ground to some to liberal elites and how they view so-called identity politics. It's to actually have, I think, a materialist analysis of what's going on in the very place that you're engaging in struggle within so that we can have real solidarity. Because real solidarity is expressed through, uh, you know, the only way that you uh, that you move, that you lift everyone up, that you engage as equals is when you actually pay attention to and set, and actually put in within a program self-determination right and the idea that uh, those oppressed nations and groups that have been historically 
terrorized by you know colonialism white supremacy uh that their needs are met and that they are you know that 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 they're not just erased at, as per usual. And this has been a historic debate, as you said, Nick. This has been a story. This has been going on for however long the word class, I mean, arguably since, I mean, since before the Soviet Union, but it really, uh, uh, you know, ramped up when the Soviet Union provided that example of socialism and more people in the United States began to organize as, as communists. But with that said, you know, uh, let's, Let's transition a bit here because, you know, we're talking about the material reality of indigenous people and and, you know, you do a lot of work on this as a, as a global question, a question of imperialism. And you've just been traveling all around Latin America. So so I would love to hear because we've had some very exciting developments. We've had, you know, um, Nicaragua earlier in November, you know, the FSLN, the Sandinista movement um, won uh, big um, in that election. Uh, despite all of the U.S.'s interference. Uh, we've also had Venezuela sweep regional elections uh, with the uh, Patriotic Front and with the uh, PSUV and Maduro's political party at the head. Uh, and then we had Ziomaro Castro in Honduras also uh, win, or, or I, I don't know if it's been officially announced, but it, it, uh, everyone is saying that the polls suggest that she has won big in that election, Manuel uh, Zelaya's uh, a wife, he was the, the president who was couped by Obama in 2009. And then we've had, of course, you were just in Bolivia and Bolivia has recovered uh, as of last year from what was uh, nearly a year long coup uh, against uh, the popular government of Evo Morales. So with all of that said, you know, uh, let's let's talk about the connections between uh, you know, indigenous liberation, what's happening in Latin America and, and sort of your uh, your thoughts and analysis of, of what we're seeing here and, and what it really means. I think there was a premature declaration that the so-called pink tide, you know, was over. Um, and we're seeing that, in fact, I, you know, a kind of waning of U.S. legitimacy in the in the region. I mean, if there ever was legitimacy, um, but I, I would say like the projection of power, right? You know, and I was just in Venezuela and, you know, it was, it was very interesting, you know, to be on the ground there as an election observer um, through the CNE process there, you know, their, their federal kind of uh, national electoral um, institution, which is an independent body that kind of oversees the elections. Uh, and it's worth just kind of pointing out some facts, you know, um, you know, the, the Western media had already made up its mind about this election you know, calling fraud, you know, calling uh, Maduro a dictator. Uh, but you had, you know, organizations like the European Union, uh, the United Nations, and even the Carter Center, which hasn't, you know, ha hasn't observed, you know, Venezuelan elections for years. Um, they showed up at these elections and, you know, they, they lended a legitimacy, not by their being there, but by their observation of the process. Um, you know, and, and as being somebody on the ground, you know, and, and having having gone for several years to Venezuela, I'd say that the electoral process was fairly boring, you know, for a country that is undergoing this, you know, this very important uh, revolution uh, and through various stages. But I think it's it's um, it's uh, banality is, is kind of its exceptionalism as well. And what makes it exciting, because for the first time, you know, since I've been going, you know, they were there the economy is stabilizing somewhat to a degree. 
Uh, there are more like consumer goods on, on the store or uh, on the shelves there. Uh, there's kind of a general sense of, uh, of greater optimism, uh, even though the sanctions you know, still are in place. Um, the country itself has, and the government itself has, you know, made alliances to kind of undermine um, you know, what would otherwise be considered you know, a genocidal blockade. There's, you know, it's worth going over the numbers and the consequences that you know, UN rapporteurs estimated that about 100,000 people have died as a result of sanctions. And nearly 60% of those deaths took place under Trump. I think we've heard that that figure of 40,000, um, uh, which was only you know only for the year of uh, of 2018, um, and that was during you know a year of uh, escalated kind of economic sanctions and warfare mm -hmm. against the country itself. But we have to look at it in a in a holistic way and understand that this is you know really carrying on from. The Bush, or excuse, yeah, the Bush administration to the Obama administration uh, to Trump and now to Biden, um, and the pressure, you know, is 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 less with Biden um, because he hasn't. But it's also not any better because he hasn't lifted any sanctions, right? And even dis, you know, even despite a forty-two percent voter turnout at the elections, which you know many people were kind of uh, you know castigating as a low voter, voter turnout. It's higher than some years of, of U.S. elections, right? Um, so, but also, you know, none of the elections were determined by a coin toss, right? <laughs> As we saw yeah. last, yeah, know. you know, the last presidential election, um, and election machine, election machines, and the automated uh, electoral process in Venezuela make it nearly impossible to commit fraud or to vote twice. The, the sort of, you know, the boogeyman of, uh, you know, voter fraud that you know haunts the United States. So in that sense, it was kind of like it was just it, it, they operated like normal. And I think that is what's most what the United States views as most dangerous is because there's, you know, there's growing legitimacy uh, for the government, for the revolutionary process uh, and the, the elections and its democratic processes, not just internally, but externally as well. And despite, you know, all of this, despite this you know this kind of normalcy that's that's underway you know it's not without its own contradictions um believe me but mm. you know the 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 state department you know said that it's going to still continue working with uh the Juan Guaido government you know the the government and it has no plans to change you know this is a quote from 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 their office um and you know it's important to point out that Juan Guaido has zero legitimacy in in Venezuela itself uh he's unelected but nonetheless, he's still being propped up by the Biden administration. And in fact, Anthony, Anthony Blinken kind of gave this like contradictory statement on uh, the Venezuelan elections. He said that the Maduro regime deprived Venezuela, Venezuelans yet again of their right to participate in a free and fair electoral process. And then he went on to, you know, he went on to say, we commend the political parties and candidates, as well as voters who decided to participate in this process, despite its flaws. So on one hand, he's like completely denying the legitimacy of the elections, but then, you know, giving like lending credence to uh, the opposition parties that participated. Right. And there was like over 82 political parties that participated in the process. Even Juan Guaido's party, you know, <laughs> participated in the process, lending legitimacy to it. So it it is you know it is uh it is it is an interesting kind of moment that we're living in, living in because there are still genocidal sanctions in place right there is still 
um, you know, the, the government itself is, is running up to, you know, running into problems of how does it feed people, you know, and it's, it's done a, f a fairly decent job, you know, in the eyes of many voters, because otherwise, why would they continually be winning elections after elections? Mm -hmm. And also, it's important to point out that they haven't won all of the elections within recent memory. In 2015, yeah. they lost, you know, yeah, to the, the opposition. Assembly. Yep. And, and uh, the, you know, the, the United States was the first to, you know, you know, like <laughs> congratulate the they legitimize that one. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the democracy worked, but then every other time that the opposition has lost, they say, you know, it's a fraud. And so we kind of the 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 narrative that the United States is promoting here is 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 very much wearing thin. And we're seeing that in places like Honduras, right? Which is mm -hmm. an amazing election. Uh, uh Ziomara Castro, you know, the as you said, the wife of the formerly uh you know overthrown um president of the country but then also thinking about somebody like Berta Caceres who mm -hmm. who was uh, an you know a, a revolutionary in all senses of the word and even you know her she herself you know was you know had had only good things to say about Hugo Chavez right and the Bolivarian process and very much identified with the left and the international left i think her uh, her importance and her her what she represented has very much been watered down uh, in the north to just kind of say that she was an environmental activist that opposed dams and was killed. But it also ignores the, the political project um, that she was engaged in, not just her as an individual, but many different people in Honduras. They were pushing for a plurinational constitution and land reform. Like if you could say any, you know, any bad words in the U.S. State Department or CIA, it's plurinationalism and land reform yeah. <laughs> in Latin America. And that's what put a target on her back, right? And it's important to remember that. And it, you know, this goes back to this conversation that we were having about this, you know, this idea of, uh, of patriotism in the United States, because it subscribes to this very narrow and parochial view of Western liberal democracy, where the individual holds all the political power. And it completely ignores that there's other social projects underway, other revolutionary you know, uh, movements that have reconceived of the, the very idea of a constitution and a nation itself by advocating for something like plurinationalism, right? It's not multiculturalism, right? It's not like recognition politics where you're just putting brown faces in high places without trying to change the social and class structure of a society. It's saying that indigenous languages, you know, primarily, um, it, it's not just the case with indigenous people, but indigenous languages, cultures and nations are legitimate, and therefore they should be state recognized, uh, you know, people and communities uh, and languages alongside official languages like Spanish. Um, but then there should also, um, there should also be constitutional protections uh, and guarantees for indigenous rights, something that none of these you know, so-called patriots. I don't know what they're patriotic to. I really don't. Um, if you're believing in the pa the pilgrim mythology, it's a fake one. So what are you what are you pledging allegiance to here? Um, but if you if you guarantee, you know, none of them are advocating for constitutional overhaul. Even liberal democracies in in Western Europe rewrite their constitutions over and over again. Um, but I don't see that that kind of that same kind of a push to rewrite you know, our, our so-called social contract at the very least, you know, there's many other things that need to, to take place and a, a social contract that, you know, fundamentally guarantees rights to, to groups of people, not just individuals. 
And I think that's where we really have to look to countries like Bolivia, you know, who has been at the forefront of this of this movement. And there's a reason why there was so much animosity uh, and, and hatred towards Evo Morales coming from, you know, so-called leftist corners of, of, of Europe and this kind of chauvinistic attitude that this not only an indigenous man, but indigenous people could, you know, assert and take control of their destiny. However, however many mistakes they, sh they should make, you know, and it always goes mm -hmm. back to that, that you know, my framing, it's like you criticize, you know, you can criticize when we try it, right? When we try it, then you can criticize. Until then, it's all talk <laughs> because it's just theoretical. Right. But we, we also should learn from the example. And the only way to learn from it is to study it. And I would say that the, 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 you know, the Bolivian experiment um, with the movement towards socialism and looking at plurinationalism has, you know, has so much to offer the rest of the world. And in fact, you know, it's, it's important to point out that the, the rights of nature movement, as we understand it today, um, arose from that, that movement, that indigenous movement in, you know, the, the socialist movement in, in Bolivia, in Cochabamba. You know, this is the year, this is the 10th anniversary of the Cochabamba Accords, but why haven't we heard, it, heard about it? Why mm. are we constantly hearing about a Green New Deal, but nobody's looking to the mo one of the most revolutionary environmental programs that was actually created by people of the global south um uh in in the 21st century right and so it's a you know bolivia itself is undergoing this this you know this important process of reconstruction um you know in the past bolivia kind of held the space at the united nations on earth day to really give a platform to the global south and to say that like you you know the global north needs to pay its climate debt but because of the U.S.-backed military coup and the, and the installment of Anya's government, she withdrew Bolivia right. from that, that specific day. And so who took the place? Biden, Elon Musk. You know, they became the sort of progenitors and the leaders of the climate movement uh, throughout the world. So the, the effects of the coup not only had a deleterious effect for, you know, everyday Bolivians, and indigenous people, there were massacres, there was discrimination, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, race hatred that was always kind of bubbling under the surface, but was, you know, put in check by the Moss government, uh, arose to the surface. And we saw leftists, you know, so-called leftists in all parts, in all corners of the world, literally walking shoulder, and, uh, shoulder to shoulder with fascists, right? And so yes. this should be a, this should be a wake up call for, for a lot of us to say that these aren't just you know, these aren't just harmless ideologies, that there are real material consequences for people. If they're not, if they're not directly here in the United States, they're going to happen elsewhere. And so we need to, you know, we need to get woke. We need to stay, we need to wake up about these issues because there is so much to learn. And, and you know, we attended this, uh, we went to a, a, an indigenous, you know, uh, environmental gathering in, in Bolivia, and they talked a lot about, you know, the things that they were talking about, ministers, you know, elected officials in their government, their indigenous people, the things that they were talking about, about being, you know, that there is no separation between human beings and nature, or that the, the natural world as we know it today has rights, has fundamental rights to exist, not for any kind of like commodification purpose, but fundamentally just has a right to exist. They would be laughed at 
um, by the so-called left in the United States because of its puritanical secularism, but also because of its puritanical sectarianism and un inability to see beyond, you know, the confines of this of this fake pilgrim mythology. And so they were saying things that we we can't even get to a point to talk about publicly in this country. And so we really need to we need to, you know, sometimes we need to shut up and listen to what's going on in the rest of the world and really take leadership from people who who have actually tried it. Maybe they have failed in certain ways. Let's learn from those mistakes. But the only way we're going to we're going to you know, learn from those is if we tried ourselves as well. Indeed, indeed. I, I mean, when you were talking, I was just thinking about how uh, Moss, the movement towards socialism, Evo Morales, I mean, arguably, in, in terms of the Latin America, the context of Latin America and imper U.S. imperialism, uh, the propaganda and the, the, the it's, it's very racial in character, the targeting of Evo Morales and the entire government over the past several years, the, crit the criticisms, too, because they've gotten some of the harshest criticisms from across the political spectrum about economic policy, about, poli you know, uh, you know, all across the board. Um, and it's just so obvious that one of the reasons for that, if not the principal reasons, because it was in what uh, it's one of the few countries in Latin America where an indigenous person was the leader and, and a party led by indigenous people uh, was in leadership. And, and I find that so striking. And, it, and I always think about it because uh, there is this knee jerk reaction here in the United States to uh, have, you know, to instead of uh, looking at this struggle as global and not just opposing, you know, we can oppose imperialism. There's a lot of folks across the political spectrum on the left, you know, to the left of the Democrats who oppose imperialism. They oppose war. Uh, they, they don't want to see U.S. invasions. And if we were to talk to them, they'd say, oh, yeah, of course we support indigenous people. But we also have to develop, I think, the intellectual capacity and the consciousness to be able to link the struggles in a concrete manner. So it informs our activity. If we are just, if all of our activity happens to be debating the merits of patriotism, <laughs> then we're not actually doing anything. You know, it's not actually helping, right? Who are you winning over in those conversations? You're not winning over working class people in the United States who do fundamentally, it's almost a requirement, need to know the, the history and roots of the United States in order to truly be able to transform them because indigenous people are not gone. They're not, they're, they haven't been wiped away. You know, there's all, all of the, as you said, this mythology around the United States, indigenous people are wiped away. The United States is just a country and uh, any kind of socialism that happens under it will have to adopt the characteristics of that country. Uh, there's no doubt that the, that the new will spring from the old and that we will have so many contradictions to deal with. But our move, any movement, uh, you know, that that portends to be for socialism needs to study history. Yeah, you just need to do it. And, and indigenous, and the condition, and the history, and the current struggle of indigenous peoples has to be at the forefront of, of that of of that political, um, you know, consciousness making and consciousness uh, development. So, so I, I I don't even know why there's an argument about this, but there is, and and some people call it moralizing. You're just moralizing. You're just being woke. Like no, no. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, Nick. You said, you know, indigenous people are targeted by the police. Their lands are desecrated and decimated by corporate, you know, by these 
giant corporations seeking to extract, destroy the water, destroy the land, uh, destroy the planet. All the things that you mentioned. It's so important to to link that too with the climate movement and the and the climate change issue because, I mean, there really is going to be no movement against climate change in the United States without uh, addressing the material. Uh, consequences and issues that native people indigenous people are facing well to to put a number on that i mean you know there's i've I've been recently maybe it's a a fault of mine trying to quantify things because i was like maybe if we just put numbers on everything people will understand it but the indigenous environmental network which has been you know a a leader in in the climate justice movement in north america came out with a report uh you know like a, a couple months ago a month ago um, actually quantifying the effects uh, and the consequences of indigenous resistance towards the fossil fuel industry. And what they found was indigenous movements, uh, you know, on all scales, whether it's from tribal governments to, uh, you know, NGOs to legal battles to social movements, are currently challenging about one quarter of the carbon emissions from Canada and the United States. That's wild. You know, people both in in Canada and the United States are challenging the carbon emission, a quarter of the carbon emissions from both of those countries. The the some of the biggest per capita polluters. You know, Mm -hmm. to say nothing of the historic you know climate uh, or or historic uh, emissions. Um, But it's that is phenomenal. So why would you alienate? Why would you attempt to alienate or marginalize the effectiveness? of a group of people that, you know, in both countries make up a small percentage of, of the, the overall population, but they've only been able to do that because of class solidarity and solidarity with other, you know, movements and groups. And so that's, I think that's the, the lesson here is like, look at much, how much we've, we've, we've stopped um, it, for being so, you know, oppressed and marginalizing. Those are important, you know, uh, facts, but the reality is, is that there's also this amazing tradition of, of indigenous resistance, which I've written about, um, that really carries on and carries, you know, forward a kind of vision of the world, um, you know, to, to kind of, you know, to riff off the Zapatistas, a world in one world in which many worlds fit. And I think that really ties into the, the vision of sovereignty that many indigenous nations have had historically and continue to promote um, with the climate justice movement. It was never about the kind of Westphalian, you know, uh, sovereignty about that was fundamentally about exclusion, right? Creating a national territory that was fundamentally about excluding others. Because as we know, there were many, there are thousands of, you know, indigenous groups and nations within the hemisphere. And they didn't, they, you know, there was, you know, obviously there was warfare. We're human beings. Like every human society has contradictions. There are hierarchies, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, but they, there was a negotiated kind of existence amongst different groups to understand that our strength didn't lie in the, the hegemony of one group over the, over the other, but it, it, it relied on the heterogeneity of all groups, right, um, to, to live on one land. And so our sovereignty is defined by diversity, uh, not by singularity or, or unipolarity. And so I think that's, that's something that I always, you know, try to, you know, talk to people about when especially with this this kind of recent denigration of the the land back movement as if you know land back is just you know we're going to do to white people what they did to us it's just a a refashioning and a retooling of the great replacement and white genocide 
it literally makes no sense but also it's like most white people in this country don't even own land like what are you talk who yes. are you fighting for you know and whose yeah. land whose land you know who land back to whom doesn't just mm. mean indigenous people nobody ever said that you know we we have uh, you know people who work the land who don't own the land right we have people yeah. who have historically worked the land who are enslaved to work the land who don't own the land and so when we're talking about land back we're actually really talking about a redistribution of that power yeah yeah no, it's it's i mean that, that's a, a very good point um you know we have a few more minutes and i i you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about this question of land reform in the United States. I mean, it's a it's a complicated one, and it's one that that will have to be resolved during our march to victory, during our, the development of a socialist movement that kind of has a lot of all of the components that we've been talking about, and many more that we can talk about. Um, you know, in this brief hour, but. It, to to say the your point right about white workers not having much land uh, this is very interesting because you know in in studies about black wealth uh, that the institute for policy studies have done um they've done a few in the last um 5 or so years and even in that the most recent one i think it was 2017 where they argue that given the median the wealth for the median black family in the united states being around $1700 that trends show that all black wealth will essentially whatever, you know, that's a very small number, $1,700, uh, whatever exists now will be very close to zero or at zero by um, 2053. It also, but if you look into those numbers today in the United States, 40% of white Americans across the board. And so they're not even doing, you know, median numbers are very, uh, they can be very limited because it's not a class analysis. It's mostly mm -hmm. it's based on income as uh, uh, and it's based on, um, you know, uh, sort of whatever capital debt versus assets that they have. And 40 percent are asset poor, meaning they have none or they're in debt. Right. And so that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about 40 uh, percent of white Americans across the board meaning that uh, we're talking about the poorest of white workers don't have any land. So there really is no contradiction between land reform and any kind of working class struggle, because if we just look at the condition of white, uh, the so-called so white proletariat, uh, you know, I'm not a Sakai person. I don't ascribe to the whole there is no like a working class person cannot be white. Uh, but I also understand that in the particular context of the United States, land reform is going to have to happen. Because no matter how advanced the productive forces are here, no matter how um, uh, developed a capitalist and imperialist uh, political economy the U.S. is, we still have a national question. We still have mm -hmm. many national questions to resolve. Uh, that includes, uh, you know, the struggle, the black freedom struggle, as you said, that includes the situation for indigenous people who are very diverse and who have many different needs across the board um and you know it includes the annexed lands uh of mexico and it includes also the world like we have to think about the the planet and what the united states the debt and the reparations the u.s owes to the planet and all of the countries latin america asia africa everywhere where the u.s has taken so much and destroyed so much so Anyway, I just wanted to, um, you know, uh, I'll give you the floor to 
give any any final comments that you may have um, on anything yeah. that we talked about. Yeah, here's here's what I don't like about this conversation. Not what you just said, but this conversation yeah. when we're talking about people just kind of like, you know, saying that these are identitarian issues only um, is that, you know, a good friend of mine in Venezuela, we recently had a conversation about this indigenous revolutionary, Sabino Romero. We're coming out with a podcast episode on it. But he said, you can't impose contradictions on the people, right? Uh, and I feel like this culture war argument about the indigenous people allegedly creating an ethno state or whatever it is. I don't even know what they're arguing because those conversations aren't happening in, in community spaces. There's a separation between discourse and reality. And I feel like sometimes there's an imposition of what we think is theory onto the reality of people um, when that's not how, you know, theory and praxis works, right? You just take the Gramscian notion of, of common sense and you find that, you know, amongst indigenous people, there's kind of an organic anti-imperialist sentiment, right? An anti-colonial sentiment, much in the same way, there's an, an organic like anti-racist sentiment, maybe an anti-capitalist sentiment in, amongst different you know, groups of people. Um, and it's turning that sentiment, that common sense into a good sense to say, hey, it's a larger structural issue here, you know, uh, and we, you know, we have to be, we have to be like united on this, on this kind of uh, front. Um, but it's also to say that, like, there isn't, you know, this 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 idea that we somehow attack people without power is a, as a winning strategy, like, makes no sense to me. You know, I'm not a vulgar kind of like, let's gloss over every you know difference that we have and just class unity for the sake of class unity. Um, but it's to say that we should really direct our arrows at those who actually hold power yeah. uh, and, and trying to ask ourselves, why is it that somebody like you know, Bill Gates owns the most, you know, uh, farming land in the world, or somebody like Ted Turner owns like millions of acres of territory, right? Those are the people like who have the most to lose in this conversation, right? And, and in yes. this debate. And so like, let's be clear that we're, we're going after those with power, right? Um, it, you know, obviously this, this is about building power amongst those who are considered powerless, um, but at the same time, it's understanding who actually holds the power, who actually owns the land in this country. And we should, yeah. that's where we should begin this conversation. And if you want to like say that indigenous people are building an ethno state, you're imposing a contradiction onto something that doesn't, you know, onto a reality that is simply doesn't reflect that, you know, that view at all. And so let's start from where we're at and, and understand where we need to be and understand that, that like, as you've said, there's going to be many contradictions along the way. There's going to be things that don't make sense. Like we're not removed from capitalism. Like there are indigenous uh, people who participate in capitalism. There are wage workers yes. there, are, you know, there are, there are businesses, there are casinos. Everyone goes after the casino question, which is just yeah. racist. <laughs> this is a racist like accusation <laughs> against any indigenous. They watch South Park or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But it's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the same with, you know, I did this study uh, on media representations of indigenous people in the New York Times and the way that they framed Evo Morales as this power hungry, yeah. you know, like corrupt, misogynistic indigenous man who just couldn't give right. up, you know, power. Those are the same tropes that they used uh, in the lead up to the assassination of Sitting Bull. They literally, you know, called Sitting Bull somebody who was power hungry, he couldn't give up his the old ways. You know, he would just he was just like somebody who was just enjoying the celebrity of being an Indian person. Um, and then he died and he, you know, he basically killed himself, according to The New York Times. But this is, you know, this is the broader question. It's like, 
we have we if you know nothing about the subject if you haven't studied the subject then you probably should just listen to those who are experts on it um and sometimes listening revolutionary listening and patience uh me you know is is the best form of solidarity mm. and right now we need to have that conversation uh in in the left because you know there's an urgency of the now with the climate justice you know the climate chaos that's ensuing there's you know a climate debt that needs to be paid but also you know we have to we have to survive this moment while also understanding that what brought us here you know was centuries in the making you know and so it's going to be centuries in the undoing and somebody like Evo Morales and the Moss you know were 13 years in power trying to undo 500 years of colonialism and for what they did 13 years in power is quite impressive <laughs> so yeah let's follow that lead yeah well well you know nick this was a really good conversation i really appreciate you coming on for those who are still on i'm not leaving i still i'm still going to be on for about 20 30 minutes or so so please do stick around if you came late there must have been some kind of lag or maybe you weren't notified about the program because um, i saw some folks saying this was really short we were actually been going for the last hour so rewind all the way back uh to watch the entire conversation uh, between myself and uh, Nick here. Uh, it's been a really good one, uh, but still stick around and please do like, if you haven't done that, like subscribe, all of that stuff, um, you know, and uh, yeah, Nick, uh, please, uh, before I let you go, um, where can people find you and yeah, any, and people plug anything that you're doing. Um, yeah. So I recommend uh, folks, you know, go to uh, the red nation org. Uh, you can find a lot of our, you know, positions on things uh, as well as how to subscribe to the podcast and, and this and that. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, maybe some other places. I'm not quite sure, um, but also check out our, you know, the podcast, uh, subscribe to our Patreon. It really helps. We're in, you know, we're in the process of building a press and a media outlet called Red Media Press. Um, and we have some really amazing books uh, in the works right now. We just published The Red Deal. Um, we're working on some translations of, of Latin American texts. Um, but also, you know, we, we really need the support. We love the support for those of you who, who subscribe to the channel, but also, you know, follow us on, on, you know, follow, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Nick N I C K W E S T E S. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, Danny, for having me. Yeah. On. It was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, for sure. And I look forward to speaking with you more, collaborating more in the future. Um, so, so take good care, Nick, uh, comradely solidarity and yeah, uh, talk again soon. Cool. Thanks so much, Danny. <laughs> Bye. All right. All right, everybody. Uh, I'm still here. Um, I know that it kind of went fast that hour with Nick Estes. I thought that was a really good conversation. Um, for those who might have come late, uh, please do like uh, this stream. Like, like, like. I'll stay on for another 25 or so minutes, maybe 30 more minutes. Uh, I can take, you know, I'm not going to go back all the way in the chat, but if there's any questions that you have now, I will try to pay a little bit more attention to it. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you have any questions, I'm not familiar. Somebody just asked, what is the March in Bolivia all about? Not sure uh, what you're referring to. Um, but yeah, so uh, please do like, subscribe to this channel. And also if you can, uh, at least like the video, subscribe to the channel. And if you can, you know, uh, please subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong to support this work. Now, with that said, I really enjoyed that conversation with Nick Estes. Um, 
you know, I know that there is this growing debate and this debate is not antagonistic in my opinion in so in many ways, but it is antagonistic in some other ways in terms of how we orient ourselves as communists and as socialists. And I want to bring on Nick Estes because I do find that there's very little attention to the struggles of indigenous people and their perspectives. And he's been on the front lines. He's been doing this work for a long time and very important struggles from Standing Rock um, all the way into covering what's happening globally with indigenous people um, in Latin America in particular. And so I do want to say um, that there is a lot of exciting stuff happening around the world um, around this question of indigenous sovereignty. And I think the victory for Ziomara Castro in Honduras is a very big step forward uh, because we know how indigenous people are terrorized by the U.S.-backed regime there and Orlando Hernandez now um, luckily deposed from political power. Um, but, we, but we know as in 2009 when the Obama administration overthrew Honduras that that situation is by no means decided that there will be a huge struggle to ensure that that government maintains uh, both its political integrity as well as its status and power, because we know that the United States is always planning and plotting the next coup. Uh, we saw this in Nicaragua in 2018 with the Guarimbas and the coup attempt there. We've seen this year after year after year with Venezuela. Uh, and of course, the ongoing sanctions and the blatant interference in Cuba's uh, internal affairs regarding the so-called protests, the so-called hashtag SOS Cuba protests, which are uh, directly backed by the United States and supported by the United States, very tiny at this point, luckily. But again, you know, this is the terrain we're under. And these are countries that have done more for indigenous people. These are leaders, governments, political parties across Latin America, movements that have done more for indigenous people than uh, the United States has ever done because the United States has never had a political transition of power from um, the worker, from the bourgeoisie to the workers. And that's what we have to uh, really be centering on and uh, focusing on and ensuring that our movement and that our political struggle, both ideologically, but also practically is aligned with the concrete conditions before us. Uh, that is really the task um, at hand. So, um, so there's all these questions about debating here, debating Jackson. Look, uh, I am not a debate person. I will debate if I am invited, but I generally do not host those kind of things. Um, so that's, I, I saw a question here about debating Jackson, you know, Jackson and I are very cordial. Um, you know, we've done work together. And so if you would like to do that, he can invite me. But here on this channel, I don't think that's appropriate because we have, I, first of all, I have plans, right? The International Transmission is a program I'm focusing on. Um, and I give my analysis of the situation. And that's why I don't really bring in personalities. But sure, if people really want to push that, they can. Um, but here's a good one, um, I think. It says, what's your opinion on white anti-imperialists who don't care about racism and think allying with the populist right is okay? So this is a very good question. So thank you for this, um, Dylan. And again, if you're just coming on, please watch the full conversation with Nick Estes uh, earlier um, in the program. You can just rewind 
um, after we are done here. And uh, make sure you like and subscribe. And if you can, support the show at patreon.com slash Danny Anyway, so the question was, what do I think uh, about white anti-imperialists who don't care about racism and think allying with the populist right is okay? Well, here's my opinion on it. There is a certain level of sophistication that has to happen when you are trying to be what I call a professional revolutionary as Lenin defined it as if you read what is to be done, he kind of gives a broad outline of what it means to build a party. And by no means do I think we have that party yet. So first, we have to create the conditions for the formation of a real political party of the working class, a real working class organization. And so this debate is very important because I think this question is very important because I think the fact that uh, racism has been so secondary rather than um, on the front lines of political discourse on the left uh, just demonstrates how colorblindness across the political spectrum, you have the far right pushing their own version of colorblindness with the CRT debate. And then you have people on the social democratic left, uh, those folks who are not communists, who don't profess to be communists, uh, but they do profess to be left of Democrat. They, and as you said, anti-imperialist Dylan, who say that, you know, white supremacy and racism divide the working class. Uh, and that is uh, a manifestation of colorblind politics, which have really racked the United States, especially and wreaked havoc on political conscience, especially since the election of Barack Obama. I don't think we would really be having the same kind of conversation were not for that. And then afterwards, during the Obama administration and now afterwards of the rebellion uh, against racist policing led by black people, but supported by many, many, many white people showing, I think, proof that there are a lot more working class white people, especially young white people who are willing to engage in the national question and willing to engage in anti-imperialists and uh, the struggle against white supremacy as it concretely exists in the material world here in the United States. So in my opinion, I think that this whole notion of the populist right, I don't really know what that is. Um, I know that people like Sagar and Jetty are the personalities behind it. You know, there's Sagar and Jetty and there's I don't know, is Zed Jelani a part of that? I feel like his politics are kind of right there. And there's these other pundits, I guess, Jack, whatever his name is. There, there are a lot of folks who consider themselves populist, right? And it came with the, form, uh, with the ascendancy of Donald Trump. We wouldn't be having this conversation without Donald Trump. And we have to be very clear about that. And so Donald Trump, what he did was, was a very smart political move. And I think the left ceded a lot of ground to Donald Trump and to his particular politics when uh, the left uh, across the board was ignoring the questions of imperialism and ignoring the class contradictions pushing uh, Donald Trump into power, which mainly were the various ways that neoliberalism had collapsed and how this political legitimacy of the system of neoliberal capital had collapsed and ignoring both imperialism and that reality here at home allowed Donald Trump to win and allowed this kind of melding of so-called populist politics, right? Anti-interventionism kind of sort of. And then you had, the, of course, which is historic in nature in the United States, this kind of melding of economic populism, this idea that 
you know, free trade agreements are bad. And so, you know, Donald Trump is good, or at least Donald Trump is speaking to the corporate takeover of the United States, when in fact, he not only engaged in that corporate takeover, but um, the so-called populist right, all the folks that supported Donald Trump are fervent champions of austerity. None of them are, are really calling for uh, a socialist system or any kind of really progressive welfare state that can address these issues, even though you had particular Trump supporters who said that they are for something like Medicare for all. Now, if you ask them what form that would take, if you got into specifics, you might run into problems about, well, this would have to be a government run system. This would have to be a single payer universal system. Then you might have some problems. But uh, there's a lot of people who said they supported Trump because they were so angry at the Democrats. And so you have this contradiction that people had a hard time weighing, right? And I think a lot of people had a hard time weighing, which is, one, you had a lot of people so disillusioned with the Democrats that they did vote for Trump. But two, you also have <clears throat> class and race realities, the, the realities of the United States, which ensure that a reactionary political agenda always remains uh, at the apex of society. It always remains the material reality of the society. So we really got caught in the discourse. We really got caught in, um, well, Trump said this and Trump said that, so that makes Trump better than the Democrats kind of thinking. And so we really have to get back down to business and uh, the business of of struggle and when we look at this question more clearly about what do I think about folks who are anti-imperialists but who want to ally with the populist right, I say, I that to me, I think our first our first task is to unite the advanced, which means which which is a, a principle of communism, which is you need to be able to build the rudiments of a political organization of the working class, and the only way you can do that is through leadership, vanguard leadership, which means the advanced must come to your side and you must build that party with them so that you can win over those folks who may be confused because I'm not here to write off all Trump supporters as, oh yeah, they're all racist and deplorables. No, no, no. There, there of course will be a number of those folks who will join this struggle if it is within their interest. But we also have to understand the history of the United States where the politics of race and white supremacy and the politics of capitalism will inevitably present a problem in the sense that when we are trying to engage in that struggle, we will have to address some very concrete realities as we spoke about with Nick Estes. These realities are very, very pertinent to this uh, point in time. So I would say that part of it, <clears throat> I think, is some kind of nostalgia this idea that we're all Americans and we can all kind of get along together and we can um, and we can really win together. We can join together now when, in fact, we haven't even united the advanced forces in the United States who are already ready to fight to be able to do that in any sort of uh, tangible way so we can create the conditions for political organization. Right. And the Lake Glen Ford and I would talk about this a lot. You'd see, we would talk about we need to build this uh, mass movement, this moment, right? This, this critical mass where people are actually organized to demand what they want. And that 
is what organized the domain with AOC and risk something to get it, not just vote for AOC, not just vote for Bernie Sanders, but risk something to get it so that the conditions are then created for real political organization, right? So around the Medicare for all, unless there are people really shutting stuff down and taking organized political action that mobilizes many, many people, not majorities, but many people to take a risk, you're likely not going to have the political scenario that you need to build an organization. And so I'm not getting caught in discourse here. I want to get to the point where our, we're at a higher level in that mean of political consciousness and activity. And that means we need to analyze the concrete conditions. Uh, we need to have a concrete analysis of concrete conditions. And it means that we need to start talking about race and white supremacy. We will be. There will be another rebellion. We had the Ahmad Arbery. We had the Rittenhouse stuff in that. There was some like tension between like a referendum on the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, the progress or however people may measure it that came from that with the Arbery ruling. <clears throat> and uh, make no mistake, there will be more rebellions in the future. There will be more mass movements. There will be more of this kind of activity. And so we're going to have to learn how to talk about this in a more sophisticated way. So that we, when we are engaged in class struggle, uh, we can uh, we can take on certain concrete conditions like mass incarceration, like the ongoing uh, oppression, colonial oppression of indigenous people in the United States, like the struggle against imperialism in our day-to-day -day struggles. That is really the task, I think. Um, so I'm going to move on, though, <clears throat> see if there's any other questions. So I don't see, I'm just uh, going down. Um, I need to boost my channel. I do. I, I want this channel to be boosted. Please do help out. Uh, liking, liking, subscribing, sharing it around definitely helps. It's hard with the algorithms, man. These algorithms are real. A lot of people didn't didn't get this notification. I saw that. Um, somebody said, have you considered interviewing indigenous activists from Canada or British Columbia? Um, I'm actually very not so schooled on Canada, <laughs> Canadian politics. But I do have some comrades out there who may be able to help me out with that. So definitely, definitely in the future. Um, so I'm going to keep going just see if there's any other particular uh, comments or question. Um, I don't see this. All right. All right. Um, I don't want to waste too much time on if there's no particular question. It says, what's your take on the weird... Um, yeah, I'm not gonna go into uh into yeah, I, I'm not gonna go into podcasters and stuff like that. Like I don't I don't generally like, like people on here, you know, uh want my take on people's politics on the podcast land. I'm not gonna go do that here, but certainly hit me up if you want, you know. I'm just not. Um so anything um how did this start 75 minutes ago? Yeah, people didn't get notified. Uh, so that's a, so um, why don't I? So here's a good one. I know you've been very active, my man um, or woman or, or whoever, however you may identify. Um, yeah, so um, <clears throat> yeah, 
so that question was, why don't I talk about liberal identity politics as a divide and conquer strategy by the capitalist class? I do that all the time. Read my work in Black Agenda Report. I am very clear. I even wrote about it in my last article about stop confusing the struggle, stop confusing the struggle against racism with neoliberalism. Read my book on American exceptionalism. We have like two, two entire chapters on ident- so-called identity politics, which we really call the politics of diversity to be more concise and frank, because honestly, uh, there's no real definition of identity politics. Um, There are those folks who are for, you know, not uh, neoliberals or or elites who uh, understand identity politics to be a kind of white identity politics in the United States and how that is a real divide and conquer strategy that has been the real divide and conquer strategy. I tend to not even like the term because it doesn't really uh, understand the phenomenon and the trend that we're discussing. So um, for me, you know, how the ruling class has responded to liberation movements of the past is very important to study. So we had, you know, I would argue from Reconstruction to the 1970s, we had a real black liberation movement in the United States. And that movement was revolutionary in character, addressed questions of class, and centered a whole, you know, it was very diverse. So there are many different political strands to it. But nationalism was a huge part of it, as well as, you know, a real struggle for political power. And the U.S. ruling class came down really, really hard on the black liberation movement. Uh, to this day, you have leaders like Mumia Abu-Jamal of organizations like the Black Panther Party. So Mumia Abu-Jamal, Sundiata Kohli, you know, we can go on and on and on, <clears throat> who remain in prison to this day because of their political activity. And the Black Panther Party is one particular party, which is socialist. It was a Marxist-Leninist party, and it was destroyed by the U.S. government. I mean, read the counterintelligence documents, read Huey Newton's dissertation, on the repression of the Black Panther Party. It's online. You can download it. Um, I can share, you know, I usually share these kind of things with my subscribers, but I can also, you know, tweet about it in social media, you know, but look for it and study this history um, because I think diversity, the politics of diversity, I mean, it's very concrete. Listen to Glenn Ford's interview with Chris Hedges on On Contact. I believe it was from 2018. He talks about the Baki case, or maybe it was earlier than that, um, on affirmative action in the 1980s, which essentially got rid of affirmative action. Essentially, what happened was uh, there was a court ruling in the Supreme Court that said that um, there could be no more race quotas in universities. And so this really pushed on this trend of diversity where institutions began to, and it's a very neoliberal process they began to now erase further erase the particularity of the situation facing black people facing indigenous people facing uh oppressed nations in the united states in favor of a very superficial way of viewing uh race politics a very old school very common way of the liberal class to view it which is this kind of melting pot that we're so diverse but we're all together and so we need to respect diversity while just getting down, getting on with business. And that's kind of what the Democratic Party has championed because the Democratic Party and the neoliberal ruling class, they have 
a legitimacy crisis where they need to appease to certain sections of the U.S. population in order to maintain any kind of political credibility, Black people being at the center of that process. And so I've literally, at Black and Report, we speak about this all the time. I speak about this a lot. I analyze this a lot. And it is, uh, uh, but it is one of the most important questions of our time. But this doesn't mean that we adopt a politics of colorblindness. That's not what it means. We can't see that issue. We can't see the issue of white supremacy, the issue, its relationship to class struggle and imperialism to who? Kamala Harris, Barack Obama, these uh, complete hacks who talk about race as nothing more but a blemish, as nothing more than something to overcome at an individual level maybe at a soft institutional level where institutions kind of look different and you have black faces in high places, black police officers, black judges, black uh, uh, heads of corporate boardrooms, whatever, what have you. And we can do this with, you know, Mexican American populations, Asian American populations. And now we have this true melting pot, right? That's their definition of diversity and identity politics and yes, it has driven a wedge in class politics. I, and I talk about that all the time. I've actually written probably in the last six months, nearly a handful of articles about it. Uh, so please do look into my work on this question of race versus class and how to understand this from a revolutionary perspective, because there is a revolutionary perspective on this. And that is the United States is steeped in racism its very foundations are racist, are white supremacists. That's, there's no question. If you question that historical fact, then we cannot actually engage in class struggle together because that historical fact has very particular historical, rea uh, very particular political realities <clears throat> right now that mean we have to address the question of race. Like you can't have, for example, one of the big centers of the class struggle in the United States that's going to have to be paid increasing attention to is the prison struggle, right? If you're not talking about race within the prison movement, if you're not talking about that as a class struggle, um, then you're we can't we can't engage, we can't build from that standpoint. We can't have any kind of political gravity in that arena. You know what I'm saying? Like we can't be talking about mass incarceration without talking about race you can't just say oh a lot of white people are in prison but to the proportion of their population far fewer than the one out of every eight prisoners in the world being a black american right or the fact that indigenous people black people uh have twice the unemployment rates and are three times as likely to get killed by police etc i said we can go down the line <clears throat> wages half that of uh, white workers, no matter what the level of, uh, of education, white workers in the United States make more money with uh, without a college education than black people make with a college education. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, this is the reality of class struggle. Right. And so we need to understand the relationship to production is a lot more complicated in the United States than just labor and capital. Right. If it was that simple ever and, and Marx Engels, they never said it was that simple then uh, we would have had a revolution a long time ago. We would have had it in the 30s, right? We would have had it during the 30-year crisis, but we didn't in the United States, you know? So, so that's, that's what I ask folks to, to really think about.
<clears throat> why hasn't there been a revolution in the United States? Ask yourself that question. And it always goes back to white supremacy as, yes, being a divide and conquer strategy, but one with materialist roots, right? I hear some folks in the patriotic socialism movement, they say in the soil. I, I, I will never repeat that, but the roots of white supremacy are very real and they do, in fact, influence the class struggle very much. So much so that if you've ever engaged in labor movement activity, if you've ever been a worker, I've been in three different move unions, married to a former union organizer, and now a union member. You can't go a day without talking about race in the United States. I don't know what bubble people live in, but if you're if you're suppressing that part of the struggle internally, then you're probably going to run into a lot of issues for yourself. But in, in the logic of political struggle and the realities of political struggle, you're going to be talking about it. You're going to see how no matter where you work, if you're in the service industry, this massive service super exploitation industry of super exploitation, you'll see who are the low wage workers and who are just getting paid slightly more happens to be divided along racial lines almost all the time. Front of the house, back of the house, however you want to, you know, that. That's a reality. Who are the domestic workers? Who are those cleaning your shit, cleaning your shoes, cleaning that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like this is who are the prisoners putting out fires in California for whatever, 50 cents an hour as Kamala Harris was paying them. Um, or not paying, but Kamala Harris was putting them out there. That was her. She supported that policy <clears throat> as a senator in the state of California. So it's black people. You know what I'm saying? Like this is... This is this is the reality of the situation. We have to be ready to face that reality. With that said, though, I only got a couple more minutes to go. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Um, I don't think anyone has any more questions, but I've kind of gone on for a while. Uh, and I'll, uh, actually, there's so. Um, so I have some good suggestions here. I see Allison McDowell. Okay, I'll note that. Um, yeah, I'll be back on though. You know, my next episode. So for those who are still here, you know, please like, subscribe, like the video, subscribe to the channel. Please do also subscribe to my Patreon and support the show at patreon.com slash Next show will be in a week from today. And I'm going to have a Black in China episode I'm very excited about. I know two Black American comrades who are actually living in China. And we're going to have a fun conversation. It'll be an evening. You know, China's like 13 hours difference. So it'll be an evening <clears throat> stream, probably around 9 p.m. So please do come. We're going to have some fun. Talk about what it's like to be black in China. I mean, I mean, what other, what, what better topic of, uh, regarding internationalism and all that we're talking about here and to follow up with that. Um, so that'll be episode five of the International Transmission. And... Um, um yeah i see that there are a few questions it's hard to follow this chat it goes so fast and i'm doing it on my own um but i know that there are a lot of questions how about this guys if you can't subscribe to my patreon i might change this up a little bit because the chat is really fast um if you can't subscribe to my patreon great patreon.com slash danny Haifong. then you can message me questions i'll probably prioritize those but i'm not going to just single you out um you know if you pay me or not if you can't please do email me questions and for the last half hour of my show i will answer those questions so i'll post in the chat my email 
if you don't already know it from my writing, all right? If that works for you, because I, I cannot go any longer, but I appreciate all the support and the enthusiasm, all right? All right, so for those who are here, I'm, I'm just putting in my chat the email. <laughs> I need a producer. This is true. Uh, and as my man uh, Cinema says, I have a I have a Telegram. Yes, I do. So just look me up, Danny Haifong, I believe. You can just find me. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and uh, yeah, so just email that sort of thing. Um, we got a lot of exciting stuff to come. Um, so yeah. But anyway, best way to support me, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. This was a great conversation. Really good question. Sorry I couldn't get to a lot of them. A half hour goes really fast. Maybe I talk too much. <laughs> anyway, peace out, comrades. Send me those questions however you can. Telegram, however you can, email, find me, Twitter. Um, you know, I'll try to uh, make sure um, to do that and uh, to answer those. And I know if people say super chat, I've not monetized this channel. You know, I've not. And that's for a lot of different reasons because this is still a collaborative channel in many ways. This is just my particular show on it. Um, it just hasn't been, a, you know, it just hasn't happened. So uh, if you want to really do super chats, best way is to still subscribe to my Patreon. And you can look at that because I'm going to continue this work over and over again at whatever amount. You can look at that as just a constant super chat. You know, you are monthly supporting this work. And I think that that is the best way to do it. It helps me keep my sanity because I cannot, I cannot focus on all these things. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm writing weekly. I've got a lot going on. And so I'm hoping that, you know, you all will join me in the avenues and channels that I'm able to um, engage in. But anyway, uh, take good care. Peace out, everyone. And, uh, you know, see you next time. Hopefully see you all next week. Bye-bye.